couple weeks ago I was reading an article, and uh, I think it was John Piper that wrote it, and there was a little section about um, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was in trouble, which was not unusual for Paul. Uh, some preacher said years ago, and I, can't, I don't even know who to credit for it, but, but the preacher said, everywhere Paul went, there was either revival or riot. And I thought that's true, and sometimes both, revival and riot going on at the same time. So if you don't know much about Paul, Paul was originally named Saul. That was a very majestic name, Saul. And uh, he hated Christianity. He went to snuff it out. He uh, believed Jesus was a fraud and that Christianity was a cult. Well, he believed that until he met the resurrected Jesus. When he met the resurrected Jesus, the whole trajectory of his life changed. He did a 180 and became the biggest church planter and uh, teacher and and apostle, I mean, he's probably one of the most famous people and been one of the most fruitful ministers ever in the history of Christianity. And uh, he, he took this, uh, uh, you'll find as you watch, you see this guy named Saul, and all of a sudden he's called Paul. And people say, you know, God changed his name, but that's really not in Scripture that God changed his name. I have an opinion for what it's worth. Um, I think Paul changed his name. Uh, Saul's a very kingly, royal, majestic name, and you may not know this, but but Paul means little or small. And I think, you know, I just wouldn't shock me at all if Paul said, you know what, I, I'm going to remind myself every day that he's big and I'm not. Because he had a pedigree that was super impressive. And I think every day he, he reminded himself with that name change that I am small, I am little compared to the goodness and the glory and the majesty of God. And so he's, he's getting in trouble in Jerusalem um, we're not going to look at a slide yet, but in, in Acts 23, for those who want to read the story, you'll find the story. And he's before the, the Jewish leaders. Now, the Jewish leaders have some, some division among them and how they understand the Bible, and so Paul took advantage of that. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. Paul knew that, um, and he actually said something that caused them to bicker among themselves and take the attention off of him. Well, uh, it gets such a, to be such a heated debate that the Roman soldier in charge, because the Roman soldier brought Paul there to answer questions to the, to the Pharisees and Jewish leaders, that he is afraid for Paul's life. So he, he takes Paul out from the midst of them, takes him back to the barracks. Now, it's just all kinds of interesting coincidences in here, if we want to call them coincidences or God instances. And he has his nephew come. By the way, you ever read, I mean, you ever read stuff in the Bible and you know you've read the Bible many times and you see something you never saw before? The, the scripture says in Acts 23 that, that Paul's sister's son. And I thought, I never remember in all the times I've read through Acts that Paul had a sister. But so this nephew, here's this plot because 40 Jews get together. This sounds like a real good religious uh, program, isn't it? They say, hey, we have made a commitment that we are going to kill Paul. Now, that's nice, isn't it? They said, we're, we're, we have made a covenant with one another, a pledge to one another. We will neither eat nor drink until Paul's dead. And so it just so happens that somehow Paul's nephew hears the story and comes to the barracks to visit Paul and tells him of the story. And then Paul says, you need to go to the commander and have him go to the chief and let, let the main Roman guy know of this plot. And so the little kid gets an audience. I, I think he was a young person because it says that 
that Roman soldier took him by the hand, he was a young man, led him aside. You generally don't take the hand of a 25 or 30-year-old and walk him over. So he walked him over to the side and heard the story. And it just so happens that this Roman soldier in power believes this kid's story. And so he says, well, this isn't going to happen on our watch. Now you may say, why is this Roman soldier so concerned about Paul? Because Paul was a Roman citizen. And they took very seriously how they treated Rome. Rome took very seriously how they treated Roman citizens. And so they said, well, that's not going to happen on our watch. And so they take Paul and they say, we're going to take him out. Because the, the trick was the Pharisees were going to ask the Romans, send him back so we can inquire some more and get some more clarity on his story. And they said when the soldier brings him back, they thought there'd be one or two, these 40 men would, would kill Paul. Well, this soldier says, it's not going to happen on my watch. So he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take Paul to Rome in the, starting at 9 o'clock at night. We're not going to take him back to the religious leaders. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to take... Uh, a couple hundred soldiers, and a couple hundred soldiers with spears, I think that's 400, we're going to have 70 men on horseback, and I forget all the, I mean, this is a big entourage that's going to escort Paul, and I think it probably, you know, I picture 40 Jewish leaders not really wanting to go up against 400 soldiers and horsemen and spearmen and all that, so Paul gets taken off to Rome. And I thought about that, and I thought, isn't it interesting how that God orchestrated all that for his release? Well, I want to show you an insight that we have. Let's look at Acts 23. There's a verse there that says, it says this, the following night, now this is after all that ruckus has happened. It says, the following night, this is before the soldiers came and took him away. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Now, the Lord here, capital L, is Jesus. We see that as the, story, as the verse unfolds. The following night, the Lord Jesus stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I want to give you a little word of encouragement today. It ain't over till God says it's over. It's, it's not done until God says it's done. Jesus said, You're going to Rome. I think a toddler and a chihuahua could have got him to Rome safely because he had a word from the Lord. You got a word from the Lord. And so he's going to make it. Jesus said, you're going to testify about me in Rome. So I can guarantee you he's going to testify about him in Rome. So today I just wanted to encourage us a little bit. I want you to know this. God has got this. God has got this. I don't know what you're going through, but I want you to know this. God has got this. God's got your back. In military terms, they say, he's got your six. He's also got your 12. He's got it all covered. God has got this. Now, we see in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 58.8. Isaiah 58.8 says this. Throw that on the overhead. It says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. I'm sorry, but there's good information before this verse that that line ought to make you find out what we're talking about, but that's not my subject today. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. Now, it's got to be the righteousness of the Lord because we don't have any righteousness. The Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not one. 
And what righteousness we do produce, the Bible says, is like filthy rags compared to God. So we find out in, in Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. So going before us is the righteousness of God. And then it says this, it says, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So he's got you covered. He's got you on the front, he's got you back, above, beneath, everywhere. He's got you covered. So I want you to know that no matter what you're going through, God has you covered. He's got it. So there's some other, there's so many stories in the Bible like this that I just said, you know, I just got to handpick a few that I like. Uh, I like them all, but what are some of my favorites? Because we'd be here, and I know you all would like a five-hour sermon, but we would be here for at least five hours uh, if we talked about all of them. And in Luke 8.22, this is one of my favorite ones. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. Now, I want to ask a question. It's not a trick question. Jesus said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Are they going to make it to the other side of the lake? You better believe they are. They're going to make it. In fact, Jesus is so convinced they're going to make it that he takes a nap. And a storm comes up. And the disciples get all excited like we might. And they say, oh my goodness, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? And so Jesus gets up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and says, peace be still. And the winds and the waves are calm. And they say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and waves obey him? And guess what? They got to the other side. When you have a word from the Lord, you can relax. I know that's harder to do in our humanity, but that's why we need to go past natural and get to supernatural. I do. I remind you of this with some regularity. Christianity is supernatural. Christianity is spiritual. It's not just natural. If, if all we have is natural... Well, one one point, Paul said this. He said, if we don't have hope past this world, which is spiritual and supernatural, then we are men most to be pitied, that there's something more than just the natural. And so God has this. Jesus said, I'm going to the other side, and we're going to the other side. Now, there's a fascinating story in 2 Kings 6 and 7. We'll look at the slide here in a moment. But 2 Kings 6 and 7, the king of Jerusalem is in a Samaritan city, and the city is surrounded by the enemy. That was one way. If you ever hear the word, they laid siege to a city, that's generally what happens. You surround the city, and you cut it off from all resources. Once it's cut off from all resources, there's no food, there's no water, there's no anything, no supplies going in or out of the city. So pretty soon, what ends up happening is that famine and distress and lack starts taking over the city. It got so bad that a couple mamas made an agreement. They both had new babies, and the one mama said to the other, we'll eat your baby today, and tomorrow we'll eat my baby. Now, you know things are bad when you're cannibalizing your children. That's not natural for a mother to say, we'll eat our children. And so they've eaten one of the children, then the other mother hides hers. It's just horrible. The king is in sackcloth, which is... It's like a burlap underneath your clothes. It was just a sign of mourning. Things are bad. Uh, if you wanted something to eat, there was very limited food. One of the things you could buy is a donkey's head. Now, I've never had the, the 
desire to eat a donkey's head, but when I see a donkey's head, I don't think of, ooh, that's a delicious, you know, cut of meat there. And, but that was being sold to eat. And there was another product that was hot on the market that for five pieces of silver, for five pieces of silver, you could buy a cup of dove's dung. They say, what? Bird manure. Five silver coins would buy you a cup of bird manure. You may say, what in the world were people going to do with that? Eat it. Seriously, that was what they were going to eat it. That's how starving they were. They were going to eat it. Now, in Reader's Digest, I read a story of a young couple that went to lay claim to a little land in Alaska, a true story, and they ran into an old-timer up there in Alaska, and they said, do you know what the difference is between what you will eat and what you won't eat? And they said no. And his answer was 24 hours. And they thought, what? And they said that was true. They got so hungry that they were eating grubs, bugs, anything they could to survive, and they finally killed an elk, and it barely made it through the winter, because when you get so hungry, you'll eat anything. And for five pieces of silver, you could buy a cup of bird manure, and that would be your food right there. So, it's a bad situation. But I marvel at God's ability to do stuff beyond anything we can think of. When I'm in crisis, I, like probably many of you, I pray for deliverance, and I give God great strategies on how to fix my problem. I mean, I will say, here's a, a great way you could do it, and if you don't like that one, here's another great way you could do it, and I can see my problem being fixed, and I can see how you can do it, and I'm even giving you suggestions here, God, so let's get with the program. And when God does it, it's rarely like I thought it would have been done, but it gets done. And I say, that's fine. It got done. So here is God's remedy for this situation. Outside the city, the Samaritan city, where the king is of Israel is inside there, there are four lepers. There are four men who have leprosy, and they're just sitting outside the city gate because they have no one wants them inside there. If you know anything about leprosy, you, you get ostracized for the people. And so they're sitting out there, and one of them has an idea. I got an idea. The Arameans, or the Syrians, depending upon what you want, one you want to call them, uh, let's go throw ourselves on the mercy of the Arameans. And one of them says, well, they'll probably kill us. And he said, well, here's my thinking. We go back in the city, we're dead. There's famine there, and no one will help us. If we sit here, we're dead. If we walk to the Arameans, maybe they'll take mercy on us. Maybe they'll say, I mean, what can these lepers do to us? And maybe they'll throw us some scraps, throw us something to eat. Maybe we'll survive. And so the sun's getting ready to set, and they think, let's do it. And so they get up, and they're making their way towards the Aramean army. Now, I'm just supposing this scripture doesn't say it. I'm assuming they're a little nervous. I'm assuming they're a little timid. I assume they aren't jogging there. I assume they're casually walking towards the Arameans. And while these four leprous men are walking towards the Arameans, the Arameans hear a mighty army approaching. Isn't that interesting? Hear a mighty army. And they say, oh my goodness, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to come attack us. And they are so scared for their lives that they pick up and run. They don't tear down camp. They don't gather their goods. They don't get their supplies. They run for their lives. So these four lepers approach thinking, 
you know, are we going to live? And they find there's nobody here. The scripture records that the pots are still on the fire outside the tents. The tents are all there. They go into a tent. They eat, drink. They get full. And then they do what any good person would do. They loot the tent and take all the goods and go hide it. And then they go, okay. And then they say, hey, let's go back and get some more. So they go back into another tent and they loot it, take all the money and the silver and the gold and supplies and clothes, and they go hide it. And then they're going for the third one. They go, you know, this really isn't right. We have, we have experienced a miracle and we're keeping it all to ourselves. And so a little superstition kicks in. They say, you know what, unless something bad comes upon us, let's go tell the people. And by the way, we have hidden away two-tenths worth of wealth, so let's go tell them now. So they go shout to the people on the gate. They take it to the king. The king says, oh, my goodness, said, it's a trick. Their, their Arameans are waiting for us just to come out there. They know we're starving, and then they're going to pounce on us. So they send out some scouts. The scouts check it all out, and it's true. The Arameans are gone, and all their goods and supplies are left behind. Hmm, interesting. But let me show you this verse. In 2 Kings chapter 7, Elisha comes on the scene, and this was pre the story I just told you. The lepers haven't walked yet. And Elisha says this, Listen to this message from the Lord. There's an exclamation point there. This is what the who? What the Lord says. By this time tomorrow, in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. So you'll have ample choice flour and ample grain to feed yourself and your family for two silver coins. Now, does anybody remember what they were paying for a cup of dove's dung? Five silver coins. So the king was standing there when Elisha gave this word. And the king's assistant was standing there and he said, this could never happen. This could never happen. If God opened up the windows of heaven, there's no way that could happen. And Elisha said, you are going to see it with your eyes, but you're not going to taste any of it. You're not going to partake of it. Well, when the news gets there that the camp is empty, the Arameans have fled, and they tell the people there is plunder and food plenty because the, the camels are still left, the sheep are still left, the cattle still left, everything's still the camp. By the way, it takes a, a huge amount of animals and produce and product to feed an army for months and months and months. And the people go to the city gate and they rush out. And as they rush out like a mad mob, obviously, there's somebody there at the gate. There's the king and his assistant. And when the mob goes out the gates, they trample the king's assistant to death. He sees it with his eyes, but he doesn't partake of it. How, how could such a turnaround happen within 24 hours? First of all, because our God's big. Our God is big. And they had a word from the Lord. And you may be saying, I wish I had a word from the Lord. You got a word from the Lord. You got lots of words from the Lord. Lots of words right here. All kinds of wonderful promises. And whatever you're going through, there's a promise for you. You have a word from the Lord. 
You say, well, I don't know the Bible very well. I don't know how to find it. Well, I can tell you, most people know a computer well. Get on a search engine and type, what is a Bible promise for whatever it is? And you'll get an answer. And you can grab that word and you can say, I have a word from the Lord. Well, but is that the same? Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says that this was, that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, Paul told Timothy, he said, all scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed, inspired by God. The concept really is, and God's so cool about how all of his, oh, examples of stuff and all of his metaphors and how he connects things together. This word, the Holy Spirit took this word, breathed it out. Now here's our responsibility. <sighs> Breathe it in. <sighs> the Holy Spirit's exhaled it. We need to inhale it. We need to get this word and say, you know what? This is what the Lord says. And we have to refrain from having the same heart. You know, no need to pick it on the guy because most of us probably would have said the same thing. There ain't no way that could happen. Let's not be that. Let's not be the guy or gal who would say, there's no way that would happen. Let's understand this. God is able to turn things. 24 hours is more than enough time for God. More than enough time for God. One day, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky in the twinkling of an eye. The twinkling, he doesn't need, you know, a year to do it. He'll do it just like that. When the time is right, he'll do it just like that. God is able to do just like that. What do, you, what do you believe in God for? I want to encourage faith to arise. I, I am all for emotions arising because I'm, I'm not one that vilifies emotions. I believe God gave us emotions. And I think the world would be awful without them. I think emotions are wonderful. But I, I need something that carries me beyond emotions because emotions will take me to lunch. That's about it. It'll last me that long. I want faith to rise in my heart. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God was able. God was able. Now, I don't know. He could have done it a hundred different ways. Maybe a million different ways. Sometimes we say, well, God had to do it that way. Maybe on a few things, maybe. But he's pretty, you know, flexible on how he can do stuff because he's God. He could have rained manna down from heaven. He could have had all the Aramean army die in their sleep. He could have, there's the, the, it's unlimited. But the way he did it is so cool. And I think there's a, a message in there for us. The four weakest, sickliest, unlikeliest people were used by God. So if you're here today and saying, well, I don't know if God could use... He took four lepers. Four lepers who were desperate and said, we got no hope. We might as well go take our chance. We might as well go for it. There's another cool story. It, it'll be my last one for today on this. But I encourage you to look in the scriptures, all kinds of them. There's one where, uh, and I won't teach the whole story, but a mighty army has come against Hezekiah, and they're doomed. This army's never been defeated anywhere. And while they slept, an angel went through the enemy camp, I think killed like 78,000 of them. And the next morning, guess what they did? They packed up and headed home. 
They'd never lost a battle. They didn't know what defeat was like. God's able. And he's unlimited in the ways he can do it. Now, here's a cool story. I think the Bible's a cool book. I think there's a lot of funny stuff in the Bible. This is kind of funny to me. In 2 Kings 13, verses, starting at verse 20, if we read the previous verses to this, Elisha's just given a, a prophecy to the king. So there's this whole situation going on right before this, and Elisha gives a prophecy to the king, and then here's the next verse. Elisha died and was buried. I go, really? That's like a bad transition. You know, it just seemed like there's all this stuff going on in Elisha's life, and then it's like, er, comes to stop, and Elisha died and was buried. Okay, so he took five words to transition. Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Spring's a good time where there's new calves and sheep and all kinds of things you can steal and, and plunder and loot. And it says, once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly a band, they saw a band of raiders, so they threw, this is their buddy, they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood at his feet. He must have had one more miracle left in him. <laughs> he must have had one more miracle left in him. And God said, it ain't over till I say it's over. They say, well, Elisha's ministry's done. Well, it seems like it's done when they start off with this. Elisha died and was buried. But it wasn't done. There was still life there. Still hope there. And the man came to life and stood to his feet. You may say, well, I'm old now. I think my time's done. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's not done. I thought about this, about, you know, Elisha being dead. And I thought about how many people, uh, since I pastored here, have gone on to be with the Lord and have done their memorial services. I thought about Barney and Shirley Sammons, uh, Elmer and Charlotte Landberg. I don't know if many remember maybe those people I read. Charlotte has gone on to be with the Lord. She still has a funny story in her. So I've probably told the story before, but one day Darlene and I were over visiting Charlotte. Elmer had already gone on to be with the Lord, and uh, she knew we were coming. We asked if we'd come by and talk and chat. And so we were chatting with them, and, and she made uh, some delicious, incredible monkey bread. You ever heard about monkey bread? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, I'm always open to it, just so I'd throw that out there. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I'm devouring my monkey breath. Man, that was good. So I look over at Darlene. Darlene's eating about half hers, put a napkin over, which is not uncommon for her. She'll nibble on something, put a napkin over. So I'm looking over there thinking, hey, you, you done with that monkey bread? And so she looks at me, and so I slide it over, take the napkin off of it, and, and eat the monkey bread. Um, now, I want to say this clearly. Charlotte, I really mean this, very clean, very neat, home impeccable, everything impeccable. So we get out of the car, and I said, and Darlene said, I can't believe you ate that monkey bread. I said, I said, that monkey bread was awesome. She said, I found a hair in the monkey bread, and I didn't want to finish it, and you just gobbled it down like it was nothing. I said, I didn't even taste that hair, man. I didn't have a chance. I, I, I ate that like nothing. So Charlotte, although she'd been with the Lord, she's still got a laugh in her. Uh, so you got Barney and Shirley and Elmer and Charlotte Lamberg, Fred and Becky Ammerman. And forgive me if I don't mention your loved one, because there's been many. Butch Dawson, Sue White, Larry and Ruth Schreier, Jerry Burdett, Errol Graham, Tara Gines, Wayne Fravel, 
Bob Kent, Dan Small. I was thinking about these people, thinking about Elisha, because in every one of these memorial services, I told people about Jesus. And every one of these memorial services, someone gave their life to Jesus or recommitted their heart to the Lord. And I was thinking as this week, last week as I was going over this, I thought, it's like God said, y'all still had one more miracle in you. You, just like that physical life came into that man at your memorial service, when the gospel message was shared, there was eternal life still in you being passed along through Jesus and the word of the Lord. So, we all... Even in our memorial service, there will be a miracle left in us. People will come to know Jesus as their Savior. So this week's goal, I want to encourage us. Daily remind yourself of the power of God's promises. And I probably should have written this up there. Find that promise. Find that promise. I want to encourage you too because me, you, all of us, we're we're ones to sit here and go, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm struggling with insecurities or, or I, I'm discouraged or I got loved ones that don't know Jesus as their Savior. You know, whatever it is, just think about loved ones who don't know Jesus. I, I remember Joshua got up and he said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I don't remember him saying, as for me and my house, I think we're going to serve the Lord. Hey, kids, uh, come, uh, y'all want to serve the Lord? He said, we're going to serve the Lord. There's, Scripture says you and all your house will be saved. I think we can trust God that because there's a believer in the family, there is an anointing for salvation. Find a Scripture on whatever it is. And, and don't say, that's a great idea and I'm going to do that, and then forget to do it. Tell yourself, I'm going to truly do this. I'm going to find a Bible promise and hold on to it and see it come to pass, and I'm not going to be the one who will say, it can't happen. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Just keep hanging in there. Keep believing God. 